we've seen him regarded more and more so, perhaps, as a killjoy. Someone who prevents me from having my pleasure, my satisfaction, my enjoyment in life. If we get into the realm of, of academics, we see him regarded as a myth. He's just like a, a Greek mythology. He's made up. He's an idea. If we continue going, even historians today are saying that what is known about Christ is not really the actual truth. He's, he's now a larger-than-life man-made figure. He's been turned into a legend much like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. The truths of his life are blurred. That's no secret the world thinks about our Lord that way, but what's troubling is how even in the church we're prone to have a mistaken view of Christ from time to time. Aren't our hearts tempted and prone to think of Jesus as simply a genie to meet our needs and our wants? Sometimes things don't go the way I want it. And so I wouldn't say this with my mouth, but I, I act, act it out and believe it with my heart that if things don't go the way I want, I'll just pray to the Lord about it and He'll take care of it and make things how I want them to be. Our prayer life often reveals that we are praying for our kingdom and not His. We, even in the church, are prone and tempted to think and treat Jesus as more of a mystic force than a, a living God. I'm not exactly sure how He works, and I'm not exactly sure what He does, and I'm not exactly sure how things like prayer work, but I just know if I, if I pray, things seem to work out. There's this mystic force or spiritual element at work there. We're tempted to treat Him as our personal servant. We're tempted to think of Him as our spiritual guide, not our Lord. Tempted to think of Him as just a mere suggestion to life and not the director of our life. The reality is in a sinful world and with sinful hearts, we are all prone to mistreat, neglect, forget, and confuse Christ right. And some of us are in that place right now and more than ever we need a refocusing passage. That's part of the battle of the flesh. The enemy would enjoy nothing more than to confuse your outlook upon the Lord. To get you so busy or have you, have you doing so many good things or so occupied and worried with this issue or that issue that you forget, maybe even for a moment, who Christ is. In fact, isn't that where most of our hardships come from? When our eyes slowly shift off of Jesus and onto ourselves, hardship after hardship after hardship seems to magnify. But we need texts like this morning's text to refocus us. We need texts to set our hearts back on Christ. We need to have a glimpse of glory as we will today in this passage. This passage is one that will humble us, rightly humble us before the Lord. Joyfully humble us before the Lord. This passage is one that will thrill our hearts, I believe, with His love for us. Maybe show His love for us in a new light. This is a passage that I think will realign our priority of holding Him up above everyone and everything else. This is a passage that will remind us of just how great our salvation is through His death 
on the cross. If you look into chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus is finishing up a conversation with His disciples and He says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. But what we come to today is that picture of the kingdom of God. Peter, John, and James are going to be up on this mountain with Jesus and as He's transfigured, they're going to see this this perfect appearance of who He is. They're going to see the kind of people He interacts with. They're going to see the, the purpose of heaven, of the kingdom of God. They're going to see the proclamation of the kingdom of God. You are My Son. This is My Son. Listen to Him. The kingdom of God is going to be laid out before us in the very transfiguration of our Lord. It is a glorious passage with glorious truths that gives us a glimpse of the true glory of Christ that refocuses our hearts upon the truth of who He is. Church, this is a text. And this is a picture of Christ. The Jesus of the Bible that I guarantee you will help you overcome temptation. Help you weather the storm. Help you out of your struggle. Help you battle with conflict in your life. This is a truth we need in our hearts most desperately. This is a truth that helps keep Christ as the head of our church. This is a truth that reprioritizes the importance of worship for us as a church and focusing upon Christ and Christ alone in our worship as a church. This is a passage that reprioritizes our evangelism and furthering the kingdom of God and not our own kingdom. All of these things can find its foundation and its root of knowing who this Jesus is as He's described and explained in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. 36. And so it's my eager hope that today you will be refocused. You'll find this text as your spiritual reading glasses to more clearly and crisply see Christ. That He would be magnified in your heart. Let's look in Luke chapter 9 this morning, verse 28. Read the passage and we will come back and walk through it. Verse 28, Luke writes and reports, Now about eight days after these sayings, eight days after uh, verses 18 through 27, Jesus took with Him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered, and His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, overcome, burdened with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. It is good that we see this. That's a truth for us to exclaim as well. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what He said. And as He was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. 
And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The first thing we look at in this passage is in verse 28 and 29. It's a glorious appearance. A glorious appearance. Because as the Lord takes Peter, John, and James up to the mountain to pray, and as He's praying, they are falling asleep. But while the Lord's praying, He is instantly changed. There's this transformation that takes place. Let me tell you, if you want to know about Jesus, if you are just being exposed to Him, this is a truth you want to know. He was literally truthfully, historically changed, transformed. This means that those ordinary, unassuming human looks he had about himself, those ordinary, everyday carpenter's clothes he he was wearing, Luke tells us they became dazzling white. His face was altered. We don't know exactly what he looked like. But we do know that for the disciples, He was unmistakably divine. He was glorious. He was radiant, as Mark's account says. He was different. It is miraculous. A blinding appearance. Unmistakably divine appearance. And I believe there's three or four things we can learn here from His glorious appearance, His his glorious change. Number one, it shows us His nature. His transfiguration shows us His nature. Now, it's important to note Christ's nature was not changed at His transfiguration. His heart, His character, His desires, His will, all of those things are constant, unchanging. So it's not who He was that was changed, just His appearance that was changed. And so for the first time since He was born, and the only time before His second coming, we see His appearance match His nature. In fact, John MacArthur would call this a preview of the second coming. Here is the first and only time we have recorded where the Lord looked like what He looked like matched who He was at the core. See, Philippians 2, you remember that Christological passage where Paul talks about Jesus humbling Himself and taking on flesh, being born in the likeness of man, being born as a servant. He was veiled in human flesh. His glory was veiled while He lived on this earth. But here's a moment in time where that veil was lifted momentarily. For this one instance, what He looked like matched who He was. He's glorious. He's radiant. He's dazzling. He's beautiful. He's divine. This is the first time that human eyes can lay upon the beauty of the Lord unveiled, unmasked, unguarded. Must have been for these disciples a very humbling experience. A worthy lesson for them to learn. Certainly it was shocking. Certainly it was rememberable. The passage ends in verse 36. They kept silent, told no one in those days anything of what had happened, anything of what they had seen, and yet these Gospel writers have a very accurate account of it. It was a rememberable occasion when they had finally seen the Lord of glory unveiled, unmasked. And you can imagine their casual treatment of Christ probably dissipated more this day. 
He's not like the rabbis around us, is he? He's not like Peter, and he's not like John, and he's not like James. There's some glory here. I've seen him do miracles, and I've seen him heal the, the sick, and raise the dead, and feed 5,000, all of these things. I can confess him to be the Christ of God, but I have never seen him with my eyes like I see him now. I see him in glorious, glorious beauty. So for the first time, the Lord's appearance matches and reveals His nature. He's not just a humble carpenter from Nazareth, is He? So much more. The second thing His glorious appearance teaches us is it shows us how different Jesus is from the disciples and how different He is from everyone else. This, this text forces us to see Him as the exalted One. He is higher than us, isn't He? Far above us, isn't He? He's more glorious, more powerful, more important, more wonderful than us or anyone else who has ever lived. These disciples are forced to recognize He is transcendent above them. He is greater than they are. And not only them, He's greater than the religious leaders of their day. He's greater than the political leaders of their day. Rome and all of its might and Caesar and all of His earthly glory doesn't compare to Christ. Even for us, He's greater than our leaders of our day. Isn't it such a temptation for us to replace Jesus with other people or other things that we idolize. You watch people my age and younger, and you will quickly realize that this millennial generation is so consumed with idolizing famous people and celebrities and things. They want to be like this person and that person. They want to own and have this thing and that thing. That's, that's built into the human heart. That's been going on for centuries. And we are tempted to do that even as Christians who know the grace of God and the, the value of walking with Christ. We are even tempted. We are even prone to and we have to fight the battle against replacing Christ in our hearts every single day with something that the world has to offer right. This passage helps us in that battle. There is no one like Jesus. The greatest singer, an athlete, or actor on the world doesn't compare to Christ. Don't waste your life idolizing someone lesser than Him. You can know this Jesus. We can walk with this Jesus. We can pray to this Jesus and commune with Him and fellowship with Him. There is none like Him. No one possesses the glory that He possesses. Maybe we don't struggle with idolizing others. Although I would be willing to say you probably do. Maybe we're more prone to just bring Jesus down to a human level and leave Him there. I believe in God and I know God is the Father and Creator and Ruler of all things and Jesus is His Son, but I only think of Jesus in terms of His humanity. Now most certainly we're reading about Jesus and His humanity, right? He did come to earth as a human being. He took on flesh, but... As part of the incarnation, to deny that would be to deny Christ. But this passage doesn't let us 
believe Jesus as a human. This, this passage doesn't let us isolate His humanity from His divinity, does it? This passage makes it clear. He's not just a man. He is God in the flesh. Oh, what an important refocusing passage to put for us and help us to keep Christ in the right perspective in our lives. How often can we go a day to our destruction without considering the glory of Christ. Oh, no preacher needs to heap guilt upon your soul for that. You know within your own heart you often struggle with keeping Christ where He needs to be. We all ought to be quick to admit that. So I exhort you from this text, do not replace Jesus with your spouse or your kids or your job or your friends or your education or your favorite author or preacher or, or leader. Keep Him in the place of honor that He deserves. The throne. The third thing that His glorious appearance uh, makes clear to us is it shows us what kind of humility we are to have towards Him. Not just that He's different from everyone else, but how we are to relate to Him in humility. This truth of Christ and His appearance matching His nature doesn't allow us to approach Him or relate to Him or treat Him as we treat everyone else. It demands honor. His transfiguration demands worship. It demands reverence. It demands respect. It demands devotion. If you come to this Jesus and you believe what we're reading this morning, and yet you treat Him just like you treat everybody else in this world, you're missing out on the significance of the passage. His transfiguration elevates Him in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts to the place, the sole place of honor. It could go without saying, but I probably should say it anyways. To treat Jesus with selfishness and pride is foolishness. And contrary to Scripture. And yet, how often do we do that? To say that you will not listen to Christ or that you will not follow Christ or that you want to believe in Him but He's not going to dictate every area of your life is foolishness. In fact... To believe in a Jesus where that is possible is to believe in a Jesus contrary to Scripture. This transfiguration church, it doesn't just show how far above us He is, it shows us how humble we should be towards Him. Fourthly, His glorious appearance and maybe most notably it shows us how great a love He must have to humble Himself and die for us. Philippians 2, again, Paul, as though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made Himself nothing. Taking on humanity. And not just taking on humanity, He was humbling Himself to the point of death. Even what? Death on a cross. This is what we find of this Jesus. The glorious appearance 
the altered face, the dazzling radiant white clothes, the unmistakably divine appearance that He possesses, is the same Jesus who has His heart set towards Jerusalem to die. We have a taste right here of what Paul is saying in Philippians 2. When we picture the transfiguration of Christ and couple that with the knowledge and understanding of the cross. When we think of Jesus at the transfiguration, we have no doubt. It's not the Romans who take His life. It's not the high priest who takes His life. He lays His life down of His own accord. No one conquers and overcomes this transfigured Jesus. He gives Himself up for us. How how significant now is our salvation? How significant now is the cross when we see it in light of His transfiguration? It is beautiful. And it is glorious. And it dispels the doubts of God's love towards us. His love is heightened. His love is on display when we read this passage and know that He's going to Jerusalem. This glory that we witness now is only momentarily witnessed in His life. The rest of the time, church, it is veiled for the sake of dying for humanity. The glory we witness right now in this passage is the same glorious Jesus who was sinned against, transgressed, and disobeyed in a cosmic sense, and yet who showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, He went to the cross for us. What a glorious and beautiful picture it is, isn't it? There's those four things that we can learn about His glorious appearance. There's more things we could learn, secondly, from this passage of the glorious company that He keeps. Verses 30 and 31. His glorious appearance demands a glorious company. Verse 30, two men are talking with Him. They're Moses and Elijah. Now the disciples, when they wake up, would not have recognized Moses and Elijah. They've been dead for centuries. The Lord perhaps introduced them or they introduced themselves. But they recognized Moses and Elijah are with Him. And they themselves, in verse 31, appear in glory. And they're speaking of His departure, which He was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. We find here not just national heroes, which Moses and Elijah were, we find occupants of heaven conversing with Christ. Men who had died trusting God, who had now been dwelling with God, are found conversing with Christ. They're not divine like God, but they are, verse 31, transformed in the glory of God. They themselves are glorious in appearance. And they're commissioned to have a few moments with Christ. To leave heaven and speak with the Lord. And there are four more truths we can learn with the company He keeps of these two men. Number one, it shows not only His exaltation over other people like the disciples, it shows His exaltation over heavenly dwellers. You look at Hebrews chapter 1 and you'll have a very clear teaching that Jesus is greater than all the angels. But here we find an instance where Jesus is even greater than redeemed saints. Redeemed saints of old. 
what we learn is that he's not just greater than the disciples and he's not just greater than the religious leaders and he's not just greater than the leaders of our day. He's greater than everyone in the created order. He's more glorious than all of creation. Secondly, His glorious company shows the kind of concern that heaven has for the redemptive plan of God. Take significant notice of verse 31 and what they are talking about. His departure. In fact, the literal Greek word right there is His exodus. Your Bible may have a footnote there. Uh, kind of interesting how Moses is talking with Christ about His exodus. If you remember the book of Exodus, Moses is the one whom God uses to bring the people out of the land of Egypt. The great exodus where God delivers them from their captivity and sets them on the path to the promised land. Redeems them. It is a picture of our salvation. And now we find Moses centuries later standing with Christ on this mountain talking about the exodus that he's going to bring about. The, the true and real exodus. The first one was a shadow pointing to this one that Christ is about to accomplish where He goes to the cross at Jerusalem and delivers us from the captivity of our sins, the enslavement of our sin, and sets us on the path and the pilgrimage to the promised land. They're talking about His departure. Heaven is concerned with Christ going to the cross. Even these Old Testament saints who had died centuries before knew Jesus was their atonement. Let us come and talk to you about your death. How significant is it also that in verse 21 and 22, just a mere eight or so days earlier, Jesus has predicted His death to the disciples. Now, Moses and Elijah appear to Him and they're talking about His death with Him. It's, it's quite clear, isn't it? His crucifixion is at the forefront of His heart and His mind. In fact, we can say it's His desire to die for us. And these men are just as interested in it as Jesus. Because they knew, although they died centuries earlier trusting in God, they knew that trusting in God to deal with their sins meant Christ going to the cross. The departure that He's about to accomplish in Jerusalem church, it is of eternal importance and it is a matter that is dear to the heart of all creation. It is the salvation of humanity. Thirdly, and let's move along quickly here. The third thing we can glean from the kind of glorious company that he keeps is it shows the security of all the saints who die trusting God. Notice how Christ preserves them. We do not just disappear. And we do not just become annihilated. And we do not just cease to exist. These two men who died centuries earlier are found very much alive with Jesus. They're not hallucinations. They appeared there standing with Him, talking with Him, conversing with Him. They are preserved and protected by Christ Himself. The same glory displayed in His transfiguration, the same power displayed in His transfiguration is the same glory and the same power that will preserve these two saints for eternity that will preserve all saints for eternity. When we die, we go to heaven with Jesus. We are 
redeemed and made glorious like Him and dwell with Him. It's not just that though. The fourth thing we learn from the kind of company that He keeps, and this pertains to even how we relate to Him, is that it shows how Christ relates to us after death. It's not just that He preserves us. But Moses and Elijah get to talk to Him. They get to see Him and know Him in His glorious state, in His glorious appearance. They get to enjoy His presence and they get to talk to Him about His plans to die on the cross. This Jesus in His glorious appearance right here, church, wants us. Wants a relationship with us. Desires to dwell with us. Desires for us to know Him in this kind of, this kind of way. What an honor it must be for us. Not only be made like Him, but to be with Him. We too, one day, will get to see what Peter, John, and James, and Moses, and Elijah see right here in this text if we are saved by the grace of Christ. We too will get to lay eyes on the transfigured, glorious Savior. And we too, like Moses, and Elijah, and Peter, and John, and James, will get to enjoy His presence and converse with Him and be with Him forever. Romans 8, inseparable from Christ. Oh, how the privilege of the redeemed saints of Christ is at its highest when we're able to stand in His presence and enjoy Him. When we too get to converse with Him about the power of the cross and the presence of Christ forever. Oh, how the glorious company He keeps not only tells us how glorious He is, but tells us of the sweet and tender nature and love He has for us as we relate to Him. I don't know about you, but I feel woefully unworthy to converse with someone like Jesus. Yet by the grace of God, we enjoy Him forever. The third thing this morning, real quickly, is there is a glorious confirmation that happens in the passage. So, we've seen a glorious appearance Glorious company. Now we find a glorious confirmation in this glimpse of glory of Christ. It's found in verses 32 to 36, the kind of larger chunk of the text. You find in verse 32 that Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. It, it echoes what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. These weak disciples, whom we all take after, are overcome by sleep. It's such a contrast to the person of Jesus in this text who stands in radiant glory and these guys who can't keep their eyes open. But they became fully awake in verse 32. And when they did, they, they see the glory of Christ. They see Moses and Elijah. They're understandably shocked. And then Peter makes another good statement in verse 33. It is good that we are here. And that's true for us. It's good that we see this of Christ. It's good that we put on these spiritual reading glasses and refocus upon the Lord, have a crisp and clear and accurate view of Him. But then Peter makes a very odd statement. One that uh, ends this, this story in a peculiar way. He says, let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Luke uh, inserts this. Not knowing what he said. Peter's response warrants no answer from Christ, at least not that's 
not, not recorded. There's no explanation given by any of the three gospel writers who record this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there is a great divide as to whether Peter was actually right or wrong in his saying. I would probably say most people think he was wrong, but some think he was right. Some think Peter was making an Old Testament connection here because the word for tent is literally translated tabernacle. And as you know, Moses is the one whom God used to make the first tabernacle. Elijah also played a role in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And some think Peter has good and pure motives asking and desiring that the Lord would tabernacle there with them in His glory. That He would usher in His kingdom now and do what He's got to do now. Don't, don't let this moment go away. And still others would say Peter's in the wrong. They would say that when Peter suggests three tabernacles, one for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, he's putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as, as Jesus. And not getting the glory of what he's seen. They would say that Peter ignorantly inserts himself to the conversation. Something of, of which he does not know anything about. And he makes this arrogant suggestion to the Lord even deterring Christ from the cross. And they would go on to say that the voice that is born in verse 35 in the cloud is God's voice of rebuke towards Peter. Noting that Peter was afraid as they entered the cloud. I personally think it's a little bit of both. I think Peter has very pure motives here. Albeit misguided motives. I think he has the pure motive of seeing Jesus in His glory and desiring to linger in that place forever. And essentially, isn't that the desire of all of our hearts? I want to be with You forever, Lord. And I, I imagine I, I might have reacted the same way as Peter. I hope maybe I would have had those desires. I think he was overwhelmed with what he saw. Overwhelmed with this glimpse of the Lord in His glorious state and like Peter does, he speaks before he thinks. And he says, I want you to tabernacle here. I want to stay in this place. I don't want to leave. I don't want to give it up. I don't want to be done with it. Now, I do think Peter does not know yet the significance of the cross. In fact, we know that to be true. These disciples don't know what Jesus is actually saying when He predicts His death. In verse 45, they did not understand the saying is concealed from them that they might not perceive it. They don't know when Jesus foretells His crucifixion exactly what He's saying. And in this instance, I think that's played out. Peter does not know what it means that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He's not focused on exactly what the mission of the Lord is. I just, I just want you to stay with me, Lord. Let's, let's forget about your mission for a moment. You remember verse 21 and 22, Jesus has already shared the certainty and the necessity of His death. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and must be raised. An absolute. And what we find even in this conversation, Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about His departure, and Peter wakes up and says, I want you to stay. They're at odds with one another. One talks about going, one talks about staying. I, I'm going to die. I want you to stay right here in your glory. I think Peter is misguided. I think Peter doesn't know the full glory of the cross, even though Jesus has explained it. And I do think the Lord comes in verse 
35 in this cloud in some way rebukes him. Because notice the language. This is my son. It's firm language, but it's also directive language. It's not like the baptism. Jesus, the only other time a voice confirmed Christ was at his baptism. And, and that's when Jesus came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice was born from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's directed at Christ at his baptism. At the transfiguration, the voice is directed at the disciples. This is my son. Greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, distinct, my chosen one. My glorious one. It does hearken us back to the glory of the of God over the tabernacle, the glory of God over the temple, the glory of God descending on Mount Sinai. And here the glory of God comes to descend upon Christ and confirm Him, identify Him. And so it's it's under this scene, under the radiant glory of Christ and, and the the overshadowing cloud that these trembling and and prostrate disciples hear the confirmation. This Jesus is my son, my chosen one. Well, finally, I think three more things can be learned from this glorious confirmation about Christ and how we relate to him. Number one, it shows Jesus is standing before God the Father. Notice the language. Your Bible may translate it beloved. He's beloved. More accurate translation, he's the chosen one. We identify sonship here. And out of sonship, we identify equality and pleasure and joy and love. All of these things existing between the Father and the Son. He's not like Moses. He's not like Elijah. Hebrews chapter 1, He's not like the angels. He's different. He's my Son. He's the one I delight in. He's the one who's obedient. He's righteous. We have a relationship together. Unhindered. Unseparated. Complete and pure. We see His standing with God the Father. It also, this confirmation shows the honor that we're supposed to hold up to Him because again, this statement is directed to us. Directed to the disciples. This is My Son. You don't treat Him like you do Moses and Elijah. You do not treat Him like you do your best pal, your mother, your father, although you should show respect to everyone. He is different. This is My chosen one. And then thirdly, we see the Father's expectation and our responsibility towards Christ. Notice what the voice says. Listen to Him. That's unique to this account that does not happen at the baptism. But here, the voice comes and He says, this is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. Heed His Word. Submit to Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Hear His message when He speaks, when He does something, when He breathes. Hold Him in high attention. Hold Him as your top priority. This confirmation is a directive to us, a divine directive to us. Listen to what He says and see what He does. Believe Him. Follow Him. What a great refocusing exhortation from God the Father about Christ. Oh, how we often need to hear this and remember, Jesus is not just a man. He's the Son, the Chosen One, and we are to listen to Him. Honor Him. 
submit to Him. We find a glorious appearance of our Lord and a, and a glorious company that He keeps and a glorious confirmation from God the Father. And all of these things should couple together for us to say how glorious Jesus really is. And how significant that He would love us and save us and we could relate to Him. That's what it boils down to, church. You want to be refocused on Christ? You need to put on your spiritual reading glasses this morning. Here's the text that helps us do that. Hold Christ in the highest esteem possible in your heart. And with the highest reverence and the highest respect and the highest honor and the top priority, no one else compares to Him and then rejoice that He loves you and wants to commune with you. Rejoice that He would forgive us and rejoice that we can worship Him and rejoice that we can pray with Him and walk with Him. This is the glorious truth of the transfiguration. Oh, church. A passage like this demands a response, doesn't it? Unbeliever, today you see Jesus as He truly is in this text. And you respond to Him in faith or unbelief. Let me tell you, someone with such glory and power as Christ can certainly secure your salvation and wipe away all your wickedness and wrongdoing for eternity. You come to Him in faith for such salvation. And then believer, again, maybe today we need to slip on our spiritual reading glasses, have our hearts realigned and refocused with Jesus and worship Him. Adore Him. Celebrate Him. Rest in Him. Let me just explain in closing here. That's, that's why we have a last song after the sermon. It's not a time filler. It's not just an opportunity for someone to come visit. It's not just something we do for the sake of tradition. We have a final song after the sermon so that we may respond to the Lord by singing praises to Him for what we've seen in His Word. A believer, you're going to get that opportunity this morning again to sing your heart out to the glorious Savior who loves you. To be refocused upon Him and submit your life to Him and worship. And so I'm going to pray and that's what we're going to do. If you have something you'd like to visit with me about, you know I'm always here. Please come do that. But in other words, I'm going to ask you to stand after I get done praying. And the band's going to lead us in a song. You worship the Lord for what He's shown you today. God, human words are often inadequate to communicate the truths of Your Word. Even though You use them, I, they sometimes just seem small compared to You. Perhaps that's why we don't have much detail of Your transfiguration other than Your face being altered and Your clothing being dazzling. But by the reaction of others, we know how splendid and glorious it was. Lord, would You take our woefully inadequate words and our small words and would You use them to show our hearts and our minds just how significant this text is and how glorious You are? Would You let our hearts be refocused upon You, Lord? We are distracted people. We are busy. We are worried, we are anxious, we are slothful, we are faithless, on and on and on. 
And from time to time, we need a text like this to grab hold of our hearts, set us back in the right path, to have the right perspective on You. And I pray that this morning it does that. And this week, it does that. Oh Lord, now let us worship You for who You are and what You've done for us. What a great picture of love and knowing Your glory and Your sacrifice in ways. We love You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.